0: Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest in their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward.
1: Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Diversity and inclusion expert. We used to believe that the reason why people didn't do anything to stop it is because they didn't know or they didn't believe.
0: A national expert on topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion.
1: So people say that diversity is being invited to the dance, inclusion is being asked to dance, and equity is having a turn picking the DJ. This week
0: on Stanford Pathfinders, Tarika Blackman. Now here's your host... Howard Wolf. The deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and others have sparked conversation, heartbreak, and outrage across the U.S. and beyond. The same has been the case here at Stanford, where seemingly the entire community of students, faculty, staff, and alumni have committed themselves to addressing anti-Black violence and racism. These positive sentiments are both admirable and appreciated, but confronting racial injustice and inequity is easy to promise but difficult to deliver. In addition to commitment, it takes the ability to engage in highly, highly difficult conversations. And these conversations don't happen naturally. Instead, they only happen if we are able to employ special tools that allow us to go places we have never felt comfortable going before. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders will show us how to go to these places. She will be our proverbial river guide on matters of race and beyond. Dorika Blackman is a proud graduate of Stanford with a BA in history in 1991. She has spent her entire professional career devoted to empowering people to be their best selves with a particular focus on inclusion. We got to know each other when Dorika worked at Stanford as an associate dean and then assistant vice provost. She now works as a consultant where she works with groups of all kinds to facilitate uncommon conversations on issues of race, gender, class, and social justice. Based on what I experienced when Dorika was on staff at Stanford, her clients are beyond fortunate to have this guide on their side. Dorika, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Howard. I really, really appreciate you having me here. You know, it's a special time in our world, and you're one of the few people who can hit me into something, and I would say absolutely. So I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for Perfect.
0: Perfect. So let's start with your Stanford story. I love to hear Stanford stories. Where were you living when you applied? Why Stanford of all the schools you could have gone to? Favorite memory, that sort of thing.
1: Well, this, my story is interesting. Uh, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, and I was in boarding school in East Hampton, Massachusetts. And um, our dean, Dean Jean Fetter, actually came to see me at my boarding school. And I was the first person of any race to go to Stanford from my boarding school. Um, I didn't know anything about first gen. I didn't know very much about college. I looked at the US News and World Report and the number one school in the nation was in California. And that's, I knew, you know, yes, I was in prep school. So I knew the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons and I applied to most of those. But there was something that drew me to Stanford because I wasn't old money at that old traditional thing. In fact, I wrote my Stanford essay on Pepsi versus Coke. Because at the time, Pepsi's slogan was the choice of a new generation. And that's what separate, That's what Stanford represented to me, is that I was the new generation that was coming forward as opposed to kind of the old traditional.
0: And your favorite memory from your Stanford days?
1: Boy, that's so hard. Um, too many, huh? Yeah, there are too many. I would say um, the group count class was one of them. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. And then probably the involvement I had with both my sorority and the African-American community, but also I was the coordinator for the Black Recruitment Orientation Committee that we had at that time. So I brought in the next class and 84 of my 85 rockies came to Stanford. Pretty proud of that. I That's have a better a, rate than admission.
0: <laughs> you do, you do. So, let, so let's talk about that group conversations class. So this is a class you took when you were an undergraduate yes. at Stanford. And, you know, we all say, oh, this, class changed my life or that class changed my life. But in fact, this class fundamentally changed your life.
1: Absolutely. So the class started at Stanford in 1968, as a way for students to talk about uh, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And so Stanford was one of actually the first people in the nation to have this kind of intergroup communication class. I took it in 1989. Um, And Helen Schrader was teaching it at that time. She taught it for, I don't know, I think 30 years at Stanford. And it was a really popular class on campus. Everybody from all walks of life took it. And the way the class works is you have identities, race, gender, socioeconomic status. We do sexual orientation now, but back then we did birth order. Um, And so you get into, for each topic, you get into your own group. And you come up with anonymous questions for all the other groups. So you break in a race, you break into your race, and you come up with anonymous questions for all the other races. Now, when I And then each group sits in the middle and answers these anonymous questions. Now, when I tell people that this happens, they're terrified. They're like, oh, my gosh, that's got to be awful. And I can't imagine. It's so risky. By the time I left Stanford teaching it with Hazel Markets, we had 250 students on the waiting list every quarter.
0: Oh, my word. Because
1: people really, really want to talk about these things, but they don't have structures. And the fact that we could create a structure where people had deep, deep insights about each other was fascinating to me, and I spent my whole life trying to create structures like that.
0: Well, that's exactly what you've done for the last 30-plus years, and you are now a renowned expert on issues of race, gender, class, and social justice. And you talk a lot in your work about difference. Mm -hmm. So what's so important about difference? Because I thought we were supposed to be looking beyond difference. I think we were supposed to be talking about unity, right? So what's so important about difference and why is it such a focus of your work?
1: Yeah, I think we were led astray with the ideas of being colorblind. And so we thought that that's what it meant. Um, But Dr. King didn't talk about no color. He talked about black children and white children holding hands and people not being judged in a negative way by their color. So from that, people extrapolated colorblind as in I won't see color at all. But what was really meant is I won't use it in a diminutive way. And we want unity, but not uniformity. We don't want a melting pot, we want a mosaic, right? A stew where every part gets to be celebrated. The thing I tell people about this all the time is if I walk up to you and I say, boy, I don't even notice you wear glasses. And you have glasses, what do you you think? what's wrong with you? Obviously, right? I, You know, you must need glasses if you can't see these glasses that are right on my face. But you also think, wow, there must be something wrong with glasses for me that I have to pretend not to see them, right? And so this is difference is about learning to celebrate difference as opposed to being afraid of it. That's why it's so important for us to talk about.
0: All right, so we worked together for a number of years at Stanford. That was a great chapter in your career and was great for Stanford. And um, you talk a lot about diversity, Mm -hmm. inclusion, and equity. Mm -hmm. And uh, each of those words has a very specific meaning when it comes to the work that you do, but most people get sort of tripped up on what those words really mean in your field. So help us understand what those words mean and why these meanings matter
1: Um, Absolutely. You know, it's interesting working at Stamper, I learned not to focus too much on definitions because students will challenge you on everything from Wikipedia to their mom's dissertation. But what I (laughs) love is metaphors because there's a way that people retain it and they understand it better. So this is a metaphor that's pretty popular, but we sort of add it to it to help people deepen their understanding. So people say that diversity is being invited to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Belonging is being able to dance however you want. And equity is having a turn picking the DJ. So let me unpack that a little bit. Please. So sometimes we think we've accomplished something because a lot of different people are at the dance. We look around and say, I don't understand what the problem is. Look at all the diversity that we have. When we think of that as phenotypic diversity, I can see different kinds of people. So isn't that enough? But just because you're at the dance doesn't mean anybody's asking you to dance. Anybody's engaging you in the life of the community. And so you can just kind of sit there, but be outside of everything. So inclusion practices are about saying, hey, let's include you in what's happening here. Right. But there's something beyond that, which is a lot of times when we say we want to include people, we do it only on the condition that they act like everybody else who's already here. Right. So women hear this all the time that a seat at the table means that they have to like not be emotional, but they can't be too aggressive. And there's like this little area that they get to be. And all kinds of people from marginalized identities hear that. Belonging would mean that I could bring my full self to the table. I could dance how I wanted and people would celebrate the way I think differently, my different background. And in corporate, where I do a lot of work, that's been proven to enhance the bottom line significantly when you have different types of people whose creativity and their different perspectives are celebrated. But none of that feeling good is the same as sharing power. If I'm the DJ at your party, the whole party is different, right? Because I'm setting the tone for how everyone needs to dance. And if you think about corporate dress, just, you know, 15 years ago, it was a very set idea of what was professional. And then a guy with a hoodie said, this is how I want to dress at work. And he started running the world and everybody said, oh, okay, a hoodie is okay to wear. Like, we're going to be so much more casual. That's because he's the DJ, right? And he gets to set the tone for everyone else. And it revolutionized what it looks like to go to work, right? That's, that's the difference.
0: All right, let's dive a little deeper here. Okay. The topics on which you focus are not at all easy to discuss.
1: No.
0: And race, especially today, seems especially difficult to discuss. Why is race so phenomenally difficult for us to discuss? I'm white. You're Black. You and I have had some of these conversations before. But these are not easy conversations, especially if you're not of the same race. So no. talk to us about that.
1: Um. So the white-black dynamic is a little bit different in the U.S. than others. It's not entirely different, but it is. Um, and part of the reason, and, and so is the indigenous conversation. So now people are starting to call out the black and indigenous experience in the United States as different than other um, people of color who came here and migrated here. Uh, these are folks who were already here and then folks who were forcibly brought here in terms of history. The difference is the United States has never really fully been accountable for the negative impacts on those communities. There have been like little gains and then setbacks. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day about the Civil War. People were willing to kill their family members, their brothers who were on the other side of the line in order to protect the institution of slavery. Because it was so intrinsic to their way of life. With civil rights, there was still, if you look at the level of violent resistance to integration, right, it was mind-blowing to half the country. But half the country fought really hard for that, to keep the old way. And what we're seeing now is a repeat of that same thing. Because we've never all gotten on the same page. I was talking to an Indian friend of mine, and we were talking about the caste system in India and how it was dismantled. And what he said was the whole country agreed that it needed to be dismantled. We've never had that. Some people lost the fight to keep racism institutionalized, and they haven't really gotten over it. And then it's conflated with socioeconomic status issues, right, which sometimes get obscured because we don't see the connection between how racism has impacted the socioeconomic conditions of Black people in America or Native people in America, um, but all uh, of immigrants in America, the American dream is no matter where I start, I can be successful. And if all we were facing was prejudice, that might be true. But because what we've been facing is systemic oppression, you legally cannot read, you legally cannot be married, you legally cannot own property, you de facto are discriminated against in the workplace, when you get a job, when you try to get a loan, when all of those things have been really well documented, you're more likely to get a longer prison sentence, you're more likely to get stopped by the police. And all of those facts have been there for generations. But people have a hard time accepting them because it means they have some culpability and responsibility they have to take. And that's hard. It's hard for people to say, I benefit from the system, but I still need to overthrow it. And that was what my Indian friend was telling me about the caste system, is people had to be willing to have less for other people to have more. And we just, that's not the, that's not how the American dream is supposed to work. So I'm 61
0: years old. I've been around the block. I have never in my entire lifetime experienced the number of conversations that I'm experiencing right now about race in America. I mean, we are at a very special point um, after George, George Floyd's killing. Mm-hmm. So help the listeners, if you would, understand how we best talk about race. What, what are the tools that you can provide for us Talk about race because people are deathly afraid of having these conversations. They feel incredibly vulnerable and exposed. So help us. This is the work you do. So help us understand how to talk about race.
1: So I recently wrote an uh, uh, article about the three habits of true allies, and we call this in my practice at Inclusion Design Group, Inclusive Mindset. And it, it builds on some of the things, the works at, at Stanford of, you know, growth mindset and design thinking and Hazel Marcus's work on interdependence and independence um, and Claude Steele's work on stereotype threat. So we looked at all of those um all of that research and said, what are some, how can we translate this into a way that's easy for people to understand? So the inclusive mindset is three things, be brave, be humble, and be dedicated, right? And so Brave, humble, dedicated. So the first thing is, yes, it's terrifying, right? And it's been terrifying for all of these groups of people the whole time. So you're going to have to be brave enough. And if you're brave, you're going to make mistakes. And you're still going to have to keep going when you make mistakes, when you, not if you make mistakes, when you offend someone, when you get it wrong. Bravery is about being willing to keep going, right? When you, you got to take that risk to get outside of your comfort zone, to read something you don't agree with, to, and this is our whole country, not just on race on everything. We've got to be brave enough to get outside our comfort zone and use what we found at Stanford: constructive discomfort. That's what we learned in the class is the people with the most privileged identities learn the most when they were the most uncomfortable, right? So be brave. Be humble is when you get out there being brave and someone tells you, hey, that's really offensive. That's really racist, sexist, classist, whatever it is. We want to get defensive. Oh, you misunderstood me. You're blowing that out of proportion. I, you know, some of my best friends are, my grandkids back in the 60s. We want to do all of those things, but that's not the point. The point is be humble and listen to this person's point of view and perspective and consider the possibility that people actually know their own reality. And so just listen to that and be open when people are talking to you about the experiences that they've had. And be dedicated is really about taking this work into your own hands. We've got to stop asking the folks who are at the brunt of oppression to explain it to us right? Like, if racism is a disease, who's the carrier? That's a hard thing for us to face in the United States. People want the the validation of working with people who have been negatively impacted. But the real work is with people who are creating the discriminatory system. And most people with privilege have access to those systems that other people don't. Basically, My friend says, white friends, talk to your white friends and not just talk to them. If we had another problem that was systemic, we understand we've got to look at it from a policy angle. We've got to look at it in terms of raising awareness about it. We've got to be looking at it from electoral, from a business. We understand how to solve problems in this holistic way. When you look at racism, you have to understand that it is a white problem as much as it ever has been a problem for people of color. And what so, that means is you can't say, we don't know what to do. Well, their systems, dismantle them, change them, shift them. And you're in those systems all over the place. Whatever company you work for, if you're in policy, if you're in government, if you're in education, you're in those systems. Look around and learn how they're uh, discriminatory or oppressive and dismantle that. That's really the call now. It's bigger than uh, be nice to each other. It's bigger than get along.
0: This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Tarika Blackman, an expert on inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, next on SiriusXM. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. I'm speaking with Tarika Blackman, an expert on inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. My black friends and colleagues tell me that they are absolutely, totally and entirely exhausted by living a life full of racism. They chuckle when when I say, wow, look what happened to George Floyd, to which they respond, that's been happening for years. I'm exhausted. I don't want to help you white folks have these conversations about race. Say this is what you were just talking about, right? Yeah. So do you see that sentiment in corporate America everywhere you go? Is that the feeling that you see, that you hear, that you understand? And and why is that our reality today? Because it's hard, right? Because we want the help of our black friends and colleagues in having these conversations. But at the same time, I'm hearing that our black, we can't burden our black colleagues and friends with this conversation. This conversation needs to happen amongst white folk. It's, It's a disconnect there that I'm just trying to sort of
1: bridge. I think that we've been taught about prejudice. And so we want to show people that we're not prejudiced. And there's a validation that we're seeking. We want to be in contact with people and say, hey, I care about you. I Can you see me that I care about you? But that is not the core problem. It's not just liking each other. People are talking about the police, for instance, and they're saying, you know, it's only a few bad apples. And a friend of mine said, people don't remember what that whole expression is. The whole expression is, a few bad apples ruin the whole bunch. That's (laughs) That's a sexual expression, right? And so this is what we're talking about is it's not a few bad apples. It's a system that allows that to continue unchecked, unpunished, right? And what we're saying is that the inclination to say, hey, black friends, help me figure out what to do, is painful because there's been hundreds of years of people saying these are the changes that we need. Here's what the problem is. Here's all the research. Here's the way black people are being profiled. Here's the way the media is projecting. There's tons of classes, books, research, YouTube videos. There's all the answers you could ever want. And what is it's even more painful for black people in corporate or elite education institutions all of us have learned how to succeed by making people in the majority feel comfortable that's what it takes you cannot make people in the majority feel uncomfortable and be successful in the environments where they have power you just can't do it so now that people are waking up to the thing that people have been trying to tell them for not 10 years hundreds of years, right? Like these things around Jim Crow laws, around lynching, around whatever it is, this has been going on for hundreds of years and people have been pushing the story in the courts, in the classroom, in media, in music, whatever that is. Now that people are waking up and going, wow, I never realized this. It hurts. That actually hurts to see people having that awakening for the first time. We're happy. It's better than not having the awakening, but we had to hold in our realization, our reality of this because people wouldn't believe us. And now that they're fine, it's like an exhale you can have, but everybody I know, every black person I know in corporate or who lives in an area where there's not a lot of black people, they're all crying. They're all crying because you, you had to let go of the idea that people were going to change. And now the change is happening that people still want you to make it happen. And it's like, no, we've been telling you all along, we've done everything that we could to make it happen. Look at how successful I've been. Now it's on you. Like, it's on you. And I think people want to deal with prejudice, but they don't want to deal with oppression.
0: So at the same time, you must be heartened at some level by the percentage of protesters in the streets today who are white. Yes. I mean, it, it, so on the one hand, that's 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 good, but it's not enough. It's, it's, you know, it's necessary, but not sufficient.
1: Well, yes. And we're cautiously optimistic because we've been down this road before, right? And like you're being disappointed yet again. The country went to war over slavery, right? It went to war. The only civil war we've had is over slavery. So people are like, yes, they're for us being human beings and not three-fifth human. And then we got to the North and there was insidious kind of discrimination that was like, no, no, no. We want you to not be slaves, but we don't want you to be equal. And then we had, okay, now there's going to be civil rights. And it's like, okay, now we're going to be equal or we're going to fight in the wars and now we're going to be equal. And there's been this thing, it's like, now they get it. And there's been so much disappointment after these big pushes, that we're just cautiously, we're rightly skeptical. We, we saw all of this already. We saw Trayvon Martin and we saw uh, Sandra Glenn and we saw Freddie Gray, we saw all of this already. And I can tell you as a person who works on, who's worked on police brutality issues since 2003, we used to believe that the reason why people didn't do anything to stop it is because they didn't know or they didn't believe. But when Oscar Grant happened and I was involved in the organizing in that in Oakland, it was the first time it was videotaped. And we said, well, now if people see it, they're gonna change, they're gonna challenge the system. They're gonna dismantle racist policing.
0: You formed a new consulting firm called Inclusion Design Group. And it does work nationwide with all kinds of different organizations. Give us a sort of 60 second plug for the work you do and for what, how you can help organizations of all types.
1: Inclusion line group is based on what we call sort of the ACE method. It's asset-based, customized, and experiential. And that's kind of what makes us different. We, just like I said about blame and shame, we don't come from a idea that your identity is a deficit. We understand that whoever you are, you can be an asset to this conversation. And then when we talk about something customized, we don't have a cookie cutter approach, like here's a box and everybody's going to fit in it. Every single client is different. We understand, we learn about the culture, we learn about what kind of information people already have. So we don't duplicate that, where the resistance is, all of that. And then experiential is a lot of what I learned way back in 1989 at Stanford, which is that I can lecture you all day. I can give you the research all day, but if I can't give you that aha moment that makes you feel that connection, makes your light bulb turn on and say, "Oh, I never understood it that way before," then it's not going to work. And so, what we do is provide those aha moments in a customized way that's based in the assets that are, you know, that I've kind of talked about during this this call.
0: Perfect, Dorica. Thank you so much for being on the show. I learned a ton. And I know our listeners will as well. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app or wherever you like to find your podcasts.